Your seat uh, sitting down. Why don't we turn for the uh, the last time, I guess, to the book of Romans. Romans, the last chapter, and today we're going to be covering verses 16 all the way to the very end. Now, this is not exactly the passage that I would have chosen myself as my last message. I need to say that right up front, and I hope you believe me. It's going to be hard, but bear with me because as it develops, you're going to see it's also going to be very good. It's not my choice of a final sermon, but I do believe it's God's choice. I would have ended with last week's sermon, and if you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to it online. But that's not where God, unfortunately, ended the book of Romans. Oh, no. He's still got 11 verses to go. And he ended it with the, really, in a lot of ways, the hardest and the most loving thing he could have said. Last week was all about love. This week is all about the truth, without which we'll become little more than a social club in our love. The book of Romans has uh, really undergirded our ministry here for the last five years from the get-go. We cycled back and forth to it as the foundation of everything. This book that started so many spiritual revolutions through the years, that's deepened uh, whole generations down through the centuries, the one that will give you a sure foundation in a day as we're going to see today when the foundations are being destroyed all around us which is Paul's main concern here at the end, that this of all foundations must uh, at all costs not be destroyed, or we've lost it all. Last week we saw, really, Paul's passion for the people at the church at Rome. We saw how the church is all about the people, how that's what we're going to miss the most. Though, thank goodness, we'll be around in Summit County, so hopefully we'll still be interacting. But it's not about the pastors. The church is not ultimately about the leaders. It's not about the elders. No, it's about all of you. But Paul knew that the people whom he so loved would soon be slipped sliding away without the truth which he equally loved. He knew, as John Calvin said, that the number one mark of the church, John Calvin, the theologian of the Reformation, the number one mark of the church, without, without which you'll eventually have no church, maybe a social club, maybe a do-gooder society, but, but not the body of Christ, the number one mark of the church above everything else is the faithful preaching of God's Word. Because the Word of Christ has got to transform the people for it to really become, for us to really become at ever deepening and brightening levels, the body of Christ. The Word permeating the church from the pulpit to Sunday schools to small groups all the way to your prayer closet. And so it's out of Paul's love for them that he concludes this book by saying something that at first glance anyway is going to sound very unloving and rather intolerant even as some of what I'm going to say today will sound to some of you. But to be honest, that's my main concern for you. Paul's point here, that out of your love for one another, you'll turn a blind eye to those who would seek to silence the preaching of the truth, as some have done here. My fear is that you will err on the side of love 
and not truth. Love so called. When in fact Paul says, ready or not, here we go, Romans 16, 17. Actually, let's back it up to verse 16. The last verse for last week, he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. It was all about love up until then. All the churches in Christ greet you. He sums up all that he said last week by saying, Greet one another with a holy kiss. I love that. And then, though, without skipping a beat, he goes from his deep love for them, as I'm transitioning right now, today, to his equally deep concern that out of love they not stray from the truth. Let's read it. I urge you, therefore, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. But the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise to what is good. I want you to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, because people will creep in. That's what he's saying. I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. He'll give you peace if you do what I just told you to do. If you keep your eye on and turn away from those who would cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. That is, from, uh, from those who can't stomach the preaching of God's Word. Who get, uh, and it's not just they struggle with it, we all do, but who get angry and ugly about it. Beware. And who end up out of that hindering and dividing. That's where they cross the line, as Paul says, because they can't stomach it. They'll say the sermons are too long, or too complicated, or too deep, when in fact, not always... But sometimes, anyway, the real problem is that they, they just don't like what they're hearing. And even they don't put two and two together sometimes. They don't really want the sermons to be uncomplicated. No, they just want sermons that make them less uncomfortable in church. You're not supposed to feel uncomfortable in church. Like Paul said in our passage for today, they want smooth and flattering speech that doesn't convict the conscience or offend the pride. These are often very prideful men. Many of my critics have been very helpful, and I count them among my friends. I talked about this last week, and thanks to them, I've grown tremendously as a communicator, as some of you have noticed, or at least I hope you've noticed, as I said last week. But not all have been helpful. And though some have left, there will be others, given the diversity of people that we attract. There will be others in the months and years to come. And what do you do when you think you've run into one of them? Well, according to Paul, you keep your eye on them. That is, don't just sweep it under the carpet. And you also turn away from them rather than listening to them, knowing that gossip is the sin of the ear as much as it is the sin of the tongue. 
Yes, you talk to them about it, but if you're still feeling uneasy about what they're saying or how they're saying it, what you need to do is this. You need to go to the elders. That's what they're here for. They're the gatekeepers of the church. They, they have the watch care of the church, especially when it comes to doctrine. You go to the elders, and I'm glad to say that the board of elders is now in good hands. And you can trust them. And if you don't know who the elders are, they're pictured above the staff photos across from the offices in the foyer. And any one of them would be more than happy to talk to you about this. The only one not pictured is Frank Butler, who's now the interim board chair. He was introduced last week. He's been one of my wisest and best of, my, of counselors over the last five years, and you can't go wrong talking to him. Paul is really, really serious about this. And so am I. It's because he is that I am. I would not have been this Sunday of all Sundays if it weren't here. And so is God, which is why Paul saves it for last, that we don't add to or take away from the Word of God as preachers or insist that the preacher water it down. The apostolic teaching of the Scripture, as so many these days are doing in the name of love. And so what Paul does is this, if you think about it, what he's actually doing here is he's right-protecting W-R-I-T-E, right protecting the whole book of Romans. You know how when you write protect a document, it turns into what they call a read-only document? So you can't add to or take away from it. That's exactly what's going on here. Paul does it with the whole book of Romans, with the whole kit and caboodle of it, with all its controversial teaching. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where you'll see this. So important is what we're talking about today. In fact, did you know that God right protected the whole Bible? It's at the very end of the Bible, not surprisingly, like this is at the end of Romans, in Revelation twenty-two eighteen, where he says, I testify to everyone who hears, hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away from him the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. What we're talking about today is very serious business, which is why we can't condone it. John's referring to the book of Revelation here, but, he, but God in his providence put Revelation, right, at the very end of the Bible, at the very end of the New Testament. And so in his providence, this verse covers the whole Bible because the whole Bible is a prophecy. It is a, it's a sword of the word. It's a foretelling of the truth that's going to make you uncomfortable which many people can't stomach these days. And so it is all protected, <laughs> In fact, did you know that Christ himself, right, protected the whole Old Testament? In Matthew 5, 17, he said, in just as severe terms, he said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished." Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Which is why it says in the book of Jude, he says, Beloved, contend earnestly for this. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. Why? Well, it's the same point as Paul has here. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. People, he says, who reject authority. They can't stand the authoritative preaching of God's Word because it makes them feel belittled. Lord it over. They're prideful people. People, he says, who reject authority, who cause divisions, just like Paul said, grumblers, finding faults, speaking arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And then he goes on in a very politically incorrect way to rebuke and even condemn these people, verse after verse after verse. How far are we fallen from the truth of Scripture? So important is that we hear the whole counsel of God, the uncensored counsel of God. It's like Paul said to the Ephesian elders before his departure. Here's another example. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And as I confessed to you a few weeks ago, I backed away from it for a while, but I can say the same now to you today. By the way, it also says in the book of Jude, a very harsh book, to have mercy on doubters. The Bible is so balanced. To have mercy on doubters, which is very important. It's easy to take a truth to one extreme and wipe out another truth. Have mercy on doubters. Um, because we're not a cult, and people will doubt. I sure did for many years, and there's got to be freedom to dialogue and to talk about things, and even to disagree with my sermons. I disagree with my sermons sometimes. In hindsight. But there is a difference between doubting and despising deep in the heart. A difference between heaven and hell in terms of its effect on the church. Between dialoguing and politicking. Between healthy discussions and causing dissensions and hindrances. As Paul says, And the elders are here to help you sort that out. It's one of their most important functions. Last week we talked about love. This week we're talking about truth. Which is so like the Scripture, because for every teaching in the Bible there's a counter-teaching that we've got to keep in mind lest we fall into heresy. It's like it says in Job, sound wisdom always has two sides, so keep them in tension. And today, what we're talking about is this. Love without truth, no matter how loving you may feel, love without truth, without speaking the truth, can be tantamount to hate. As in live and let die. And truth, though, without love... Just nailing them with it can also be tantamount to hate. You've got to hold both in tension. As Paul does in this powerful passage, it's like a wise man once said, May God give us big hearts. May we have faith in His working in all men, though without any mixture of evil spirits. May He give us crystal clear faith that includes love for all people and yet mixes with no darkness, that forgives and understands all, yet does not betray one iota of of the truth. My point today is that of Reverend John S. Stone, who wrote about this long ago, back in 1853. Nothing new under the sun, right? 1853. Listen carefully. This especially applies to Summit County and to DCC. 
In loving unity, he says, in loving unity, we certainly have the mind of Christ and the apostles. And yet, if we don't pose the counter-truth against this sacred dread of disunity, we will no longer have the church. This strong love of unity, this sacred dread of disunity, must be countered by a still stronger love of truth and a still more sacred dread of error, or we will lack the one thing needed under God to keep any church steady and safe in a world of sin and falsehood. When love of unity overmasters the love of truth, the hope of a safe church is gone. And here's what's true of too many churches in America today. For if we seek to maintain this kind of unity at all costs, the gradual result will be this. The church will become one vast compound, a mixture of truth and error, superstition and corruption, making the whole mass of the church unsavory to God and unsaving to men. So keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to God's teaching. I wish I didn't have to bring it up on this of all days. To be honest, we want you to like us, especially once we leave. It's going to be lonely out there. And we hope we can keep enjoying your company as a bunch of us from DCC are going to be doing just this coming Tuesday where all the ten of us are going down to, to cycle the, the white rim of Utah all the way through Friday. And... Um, uh, uh, so eat your hearts up. And we want that. We really do. But I will not annul Paul's 11th hour commandment here in Romans 16 by ignoring it or by just skipping over it, which I could have done, just so you'll like us. The command that right protects the gospel. That's the advantage, or I guess maybe disadvantage, of teaching verse by verse through the Scripture. Because like it or not, you've got to teach His truth in His time. And you leave it up, let the cards fall where they may. It's in His hands. Rather than picking and choosing what you feel like saying. And so that's what I've got to talk about today. Lest I take away from God's Word. But here's what I want to talk about today. I want you, I want for you, more than for anything else. What I want for you is, like Reverend Stone said, to be steady and safe in a world of sin and falsehood. To be steady and safe in a world that's slip-sliding away. To be steady and safe at a time when the foundations are being destroyed with the kind of soul anchors for troubled waters that you will only find in here which is just what Paul goes on to talk about as we now quickly and thankfully move on to finish out at long last this great book. He starts it in the next verse, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Isn't that great? He, start, he starts with this list of names and loves all over him. And then he comes in with his truth. Keep your eye on certain people. And then he says the grace. He goes from love to grace, from love to grace, from grace to truth, grace to truth. That's the power of Scripture. The grace, verse 20, be of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then more love, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. 
these terms of endearment again, like we saw last week. Closer than natural kin, my kinsman. I tertius. He, the guy who's the, the, the secretary who's writing down what Paul is saying just had to get his word in there. So much was the love. I tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. And then again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul gives us, uh, and then he goes on, though, to focus on the truth one last time. Verse 27. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. He's trying to endear us to the truth one last time. And what he does here is he gives us really the pedigree of the truth, the truth which he says at all costs, even at the cost of our relationships in the church sometimes, we must protect and preserve. He says this truth comes according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Many of the things that we've been talking about over the last five years that we've been learning in the book of Romans are deep and precious mysteries. Long hidden, Paul says, but now, unbelievably, we've got them to to, to preserve them and to prize them. Because they're now, he says, manifested, flash. And he says they come through the scriptures of the prophets. That is, they come through the holy writings of the Old Testament. There are no richer roots than those. And we now partake of the holy fruit of these doctrines. They come, he says, according to the commandment of the eternal God. So powerfully, powerful are these truths. They're backed by his commandment. And they're so universal that they've been, he says, made known to all the nations. And yet, these days they are all in question. Even among evangelical Christians, And so even as the foundations are being destroyed all around us and the whole world feels like sinking sand, the foundations of our faith are being eroded under us, even in churches that should know better. According to a survey by George Barna published in a book called What Americans Believe, the majority of evangelicals believe that people are basically good and so have no real need of salvation, which directly counters one of the most fundamental doctrines of the book of Romans, that of man's total depravity. A recent Gallup poll reported that 47% of those who call themselves evangelicals believe that the devil is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil, even as he devours their souls. 30% of evangelicals say that all people will go to heaven whether or not they've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and 10% don't know. But the bottom line is this. 53% of evangelicals believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And you know what that does to this? It's the doctrine of tolerance, which has become the most important doctrine that we're swallowing a pact with the devil, because he knows if we stand for nothing, we'll fall for what? Yeah, anything. 
more and more sound biblical Christianity is being marginalized as being fundamentalist, just like the Muslim fundamentalists. Sound biblical Christianity is being demonized. There's more than meets the eye here. This, this is not friendly fire that happens in the church with those who cause dissensions and hindrances. It's huge. It's coming from the culture because the whole culture is rising up against the church. And too often, the church capitulates to the culture like a frog in a kettle. And it becomes, the church has become, as the Reverend said in 1853, unsavory to God and unsaving to men. Sometimes I feel like the old man in the tale that Elie Weissel tells. And I know some of you feel this way too. Elie Weissel is a Holocaust survivor and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He tells a tale. It goes like this. It says, A just man comes to Sodom hoping to save the city. He pickets. What else can he do? He goes from street to street, from marketplace to marketplace, shouting, Men and women, repent. You are doing what is wrong. It will kill you. It will destroy you. They laugh at him, but still he goes on shouting. Day after day, until one day a child stops him. Poor stranger, he says, don't you see it's useless? Yes, the just man replies. Then why do you go on, the child asks. In the beginning, he says, I was convinced that I would change them. Now I go on shouting because I don't want them to change me. Brothers and sisters, they have changed the church. So where are you standing? What are you saying? And why, at all costs, don't we want them to change us when it comes to holding fast to the teaching that we've received? Well, the bottom line of it all is this, back to verse 25, where Paul says, Now unto him who is able to establish you. He is able to establish you. How? According to the teaching. According to the teaching which you've been learning over the last five years. When everyone else is slip-sliding away. Is it just coincidental that Christians are falling away from sound theology at the very time they're falling away from sound morality? Far from being established, we're being disestablished, destroyed in our own souls, given over to sin. George Barna reported that the rate of divorce among evangelicals is now higher than the general population. His surveys indicate that born-again Christians have a 27% divorce rate, non-Christians 23%. An even higher rate is found among those uh, who, uh, who, who count, uh, describe themselves as fundamentalists. Not that divorce is the unforgivable sin. It's just the one we have statistics for. They're all equal. It's true with almost all the other sin statistics. It's like David Wells said in his book, No Place for Truth which, of course, is our subject today, subtitled, Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology? Most evangelicals are mild closet believers whose internal life tends to tilt away from belief in God and His truth and toward a modern absorption with self in the name of love. It's like James Burns wrote in a classic book on revival, he outlines what he calls the laws, interestingly, the laws of the absence of revival. 
And do you know the, one, the number one thing that keeps revival from coming, the number one law of the absence of revival? It's this. The first tendency, he writes, is for the doctrines of the church to lose their power of convicting the conscience, of making people uncomfortable. Of convicting the conscience, convincing the mind, and compelling the heart. Yeah, sometimes they make all of us uncomfortable. They sure do me, but it's only to make us immovable when everything else is slip-sliding away through doctrines that will, yeah, demolish us. I've got no good apart from God. I'm a sinner. And then establish us, saved by grace, moving on in Christ-likeness. It's a sure foundation in a world that slip-sliding away. It's full of soul anchors for troubled waters. You may have seen the Snoopy cartoon where Linus and Lucy, they're looking out the picture window at the pouring rain, and for, for, for once Lucy is petrified. And uh, she says, what if all the earth is flooded? Linus, that will never happen. God promised it wouldn't. He gives us rainbows to remind us of the promise. Lucy, boy, have you taken a load off my mind. Linus. Sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology has a way of establishing you. You you need a load off your mind. Julie and I sure do. And so, like many of you, we flee for refuge to the truths of His Word, not one of which will pass away until it's all accomplished. Remember the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, that's been going through my mind all week. Ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. That's what we're talking about today. What more could He say than to you He has said, to you who to refuge for Jesus hath fled. How do you flee for refuge to, Je- to Jesus? Well, it's duh. You, you, you find the, word, the Lord of the Word by going to the Word of the Lord. To you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. This has been such a comfort over the years. I know it has for many of you. And here's how He speaks through His Word. Here's how He establishes us through the truths. He says things like, Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will still give you aid. Whatever position, whatever condition, whatever situation you're in, I'll strengthen you, help you, and in the end I'll cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. It's the doctrine of God. When through deep waters I cause you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. And then I love this. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need that three times. All because how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. You know, I keep a stack of Scripture cards that I pray for myself and uh, for all of you. It consists of cards of Scripture, promises, powerful passages that have impacted me um, in my devotions and from sermons that I've collected over the years. I've actually got two stacks of them, full, uh, full of truths of Scripture that come to life and fill your heart when you pray them back to Him. This is the practical application part. 
Actually, there will be two of them. Because now that I won't be doing this anymore for you, you might want to do it for yourself and for your loved ones. Start a collection of three-by-five cards. Or do it in, you know, your Kindle or your iPad or whatever. I'm old-fashioned. I like the comfort of real paper. (laughs) But start one. And just start writing verses down from your devotions when you listen to sermons, to the the songs on the radio or whatever. And collect your treasure trove. Ones that will motivate your faith. Verses that will establish you as you pray over them, as you pour over them. Satan is alive and well. And he's after each and every one of you. And you need to be established in your faith through the Word of God. It's like Paul said in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, a conditional promise, if you hold fast to his truth and if you turn from those who don't. Because there's someone out there who knows your number, seeking to devour you like a roaring lion. And I don't know about you, but he can sure speak a word into my ear. God's not good. How could a good God have let all that happen in your life? You might as well give it up, given that all he's doing for you, in spite of all you've done for him. He's given up on you, so just eat, drink, and be merry. You've got no future. You're on your own now. He doesn't even exist. I've run into a lot of people like that over the last five years. Sometimes I feel that way. And I'll go and pray and I'll say, Lord, I know what they're thinking about. I've counseled them. I helped them remember this verse that I just gave them, Romans 5.10, the one that I told them about last week, to realize the truth of it and to hold on to it for dear life. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life, saved from our predicament, saved from our sin saved from our problems, saved for heaven by the saving life of Christ. Maybe not as soon as you want it, but in the end it'll happen. How could anyone love you after what you've done? You're an unworthy spouse. They divorced you because you're no good. Look at what they're, you're going through. How could, how could it, you know, he must really hate you because you're a bad person. You've committed the unforgivable sin. I'll pray, Lord. May they feel this truth just as strongly as I'm feeling it right now. The truth that actually we just sang. If God is for us, who is against us? Who would dare? Lord, help them to feel that. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, even my own sin? Oh, no. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me give you a third and final example. What good could possibly come of all this? Have you ever wondered about that? Maybe that question cycles through our lives over and again. Well, the answer to that one comes with one of the most famous verses in all of Romans, which I'd like to leave you with, Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. 
to those that love God in many ways. This verse is the heart of the whole book, and so rightfully, it's one of the best-known verses in the whole book. Because of His great mercy, it's the story of the gospel, really, all wrapped up in this verse. And that is this, because of His great mercy, He is now mercifully sovereign through it all towards us. Because of His great mercy, He is now mercifully sovereign through it all, even through our total depravity to bring about the greatest good through everything, and that is a greater glory that we'll enjoy for all eternity. For we know that God causes all things to work together for that good, a greater glory through all the groaning of life under the sun to those who love God. Which is what I'd like to leave you with today. I guess it's kind of a going-away present. For you to hold on to, come what may, even as we do too. I'd like to leave you with this. i got a stack of them. Uh, we'll hand them out during the potluck. It's a paraphrase of Romans 8.28 on a beautiful decoupage card that my folks designed one Christmas years ago. And they, I don't know how many thousands of these they ordered, but they send them everywhere to their friends, to people who had a need, giving them out all the time. Um, and this, this is from, this is the very one that they would give to their friends. I found them among my mom's things soon after she passed away, and these are the last that I have. And you can tape it on a mirror, or you can frame it and hang it on a wall, or you can keep it in a Bible. And... Julie and I will do the same, so that together, as we go our separate ways, we'll be connected by truth that can establish us in a world of sinking sand, a soul anchor for troubled waters. A wonderful paraphrase of the heart of the book of Romans, of Romans 8.28, it says this, The Lord may not have planned that this should overtake me, but He has most certainly permitted it. Therefore, though it were an attack of an enemy, by the time it reaches me, it has the Lord's permission, and therefore all is well. He will make it work together, and here's Romans 8.28. He will make it work together with all life circumstances for good. Doesn't that take a load off your mind? Sound theology has a way of doing that. which can establish you firm to the very end, whatever may happen in the months and years to come. It's in the benediction with which Paul ends and with which I'll end too. Again, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever and ever. Amen to which we can only say how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word.